This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father God, we thank you for the privilege we have to be here today. Thank you for the messages that we've been hearing, encouraging us to um, shift our priorities and to, uh, to be in harmony with your will for our lives. We ask, dear Lord, that um, you will continue to be with us as uh, we have separated into these various uh, seminars. We ask that the Holy Spirit will be poured out, that we will continue to be lifted higher and higher towards your ideal for each one of us. I pray that we would have clarity and understanding as we spend time together today, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, so, on yesterday, we talked about uh, Jesus Christ being the key to the promise, the key to the promise, and we looked at Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, and in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible tells us, that um, the Bible tells us that the blessing of Abraham would come on all of the world or the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. So we went back and looked at what the blessing of Abraham was. And the Bible said there in Genesis chapter 12 that all families of the earth would be blessed by Abraham and his seed. And we determined that that seed was none other than Jesus Christ. And um, then we went to Acts chapter 2 and Joel chapter 2, where the Bible said that uh, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So we interpreted the blessing of Abraham, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, to be the outpouring of the spirit on humanity. And the result of that in Joel chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 2, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's exactly what we saw in Acts chapter 2. After he finished his sermon, that is Peter, the Bible says that they asked, what must we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus and uh, you know the rest of the story. Now, um, what we talked about yesterday was more in a general sense. That is the outpouring of the Spirit um, on all flesh. That was at least that was my attempt. The emphasis was uh, to, to, uh, to speak about that in general terms. But on a more specific level, I believe that Jesus Christ is still the key to the outpouring of the Spirit. He is the key to you and I experiencing the promise individually. Um, now, just a question. Everyone here would agree that the work of the Holy Spirit after, after Calvary was monumentally different than it was prior to Calvary. Yes or no? Yes or no? Okay, one person is saying yes, I heard. Okay, how? How was the Holy Spirit's work after Calvary and after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, how was that different than it was prior? Hmm? Okay. Location. What do you mean when you say location? Okay. A wider range. Let's take a look at, um, at John chapter 14. Jiggy is not working, so. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the question is, with Jesus still there, um, was the Holy Spirit still present? Was he still there with him? Yes, the Holy Spirit was on the scene functioning even, even prior to the coming of Jesus. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the water. 
and um, or upon the face of the deep. So the Holy Spirit was there, but he had a different or a change, so to speak, in, in the emphasis of his ministry or how he carried out his ministry. John chapter 14, verse 17. Are you there? Okay. It says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. What did the next word say? And shall be in you. Now take a look at verse. Verse 20. The Bible says, at that day, ye shall know that I am in my father and ye in me and I where? Of course, Jesus is speaking of himself at that point. But we know that um, Jesus promised to be in his apostles through the person of the Holy Spirit. All right. So the difference between the work of the Holy Spirit prior to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and after Pentecost was uh, it was you were correct, my brother in the back, when you said location. But it wasn't referring to location geographically. The location was now the Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of human beings. If you read um, in the in the judges book of judges and you read about Samson over and over again, the Bible says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, came upon him. And so you have this this idea or this concept that's pervasive throughout the majority of the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit moving on individuals, coming on individuals, uh, but only in in very uh, limited, limited instances do we see the Holy Spirit actually working in individuals permanently. Um, and, and what the Bible speaks of in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit taking up a permanent residence inside, not just we're going to call him down and he's going to come upon me, do his work, then he'll leave. No, this is a permanent residence. So there was a, a monumental difference in the work of the Holy Spirit prior to the resurrection and ascension and after Pentecost. What I want to suggest is that the key to this new experience, this, you know, uh, supercharged Holy Ghost experience that we read about in the book of Acts. The key to that experience is this. On a personal and individual level, I said it's still Jesus, right? Yesterday, the key to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus. The key to our individual experience is Jesus. But it is this. It is our personal union with Christ, our union with Christ, which enables us to experience the outpouring of the spirit on an individual basis. Listen to this. <clears throat> Acts of the Apostles, page 65. After the Savior's ascension, the scene of the divine or the sense, excuse me, of the divine presence full of love and light was still with them. It was a personal presence. Jesus, the Savior, who had walked and talked and prayed with them, who had spoken hope and comfort to their hearts, had, while the message of peace was upon his lips, been taken from them into heaven. As the chariot of angels received him, his words had come to them, Lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end. He had ascended to heaven in the form of humanity. They knew that he was before the throne of God, their friend and savior still, that his sympathies were unchanged, that he would forever be identified with suffering humanity. They knew that he was presenting before God the merit of his blood, showing his wounded hands and feet as a remembrance of the price he had paid for his redeemed ones. And this and this thought strengthened them to endure reproach for his sake. Their union with him was stronger now than when he was with them in person. Lord, have mercy. Now, if you're like me, it's Acts of the Apostles, page 65. If you're like me, you say to, you've said to yourself, man, I wish I would have been alive when Jesus was here on earth. And I wouldn't have been one of those knucklehead disciples. 
I would have just been hanging on every word. And, you know, maybe they would have another gospel, the gospel of Stephen, <laughs> if they don't already have an apocryphal version of that or something. But I would have been hanging on every word. Man, what would it have been like to have been there with Jesus? What closeness we would have experienced. But it says here, their union with Christ was stronger now than when he was with them in person. The light and love and power of an indwelling Christ shone out through them so that men beholding marveled. Listen to this one. This one is from Acts of the Apostles, page 85. What was the strength of those who in the past have suffered persecution for Christ's sake? Did some of the apostles suffer persecution? Yes, the first one lost his head, James. Peter was thrown in prison, and eventually he would be martyred as well, Paul as well. What was the strength of those who in the past have suffered persecution for Christ's sake? It was union with God, union with the Holy Spirit, union with Christ. Reproach and persecution have separated many from earthly friends, but never from the love of Christ. Never is the tempest-tried soul more dearly loved by his Savior than when he is suffering reproach for the truth's sake. You know, the, the admonishment we received this, this morning was doing something for Christ. And a lot of times we often feel like, well, you know, the gospel's got to go. But according to this, one of the benefits of you and I doing the work of Christ, that is going out and sharing with others, is that our souls have an opportunity to draw nearer to Christ when we are being reproached, when we are being rejected, when we are receiving that, no, someone is cursing us out, telling us we can do something better with our lives. It's at those times that Christ draws nearest to each and every one of us. He says, never is the tempest try so more dearly loved by a savior than when he is suffering reproach for the truth's sake. I will love him, Christ said, and will manifest myself to him. When for the truth's sake the believer stands at the bar of earthly tribunals, Christ stands by his side. When he is confined within prison walls, Christ manifests himself to him and cheers his heart with his love. When he suffers death for Christ's sake, the Savior says to him, they may kill the body, but they cannot hurt the soul. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Acts of the Apostles now, page 510. Talking again about the union with Christ. Paul carried with him the atmosphere of heaven. How many of you want that? You want to take with you the atmosphere of heaven. You walk into a place and it's dark and there's nothing of, of the things of God there. But you bring in the atmosphere of heaven when you come. Praise the Lord. That's a part. You know what that says too? A little side note that says that you don't need everybody in your church to do what they're supposed to do. If it's only you, that's good enough because you and I can bring the atmosphere of heaven with us. Y'all don't like the way that sounds, do you? Well, it's true, anyhow. This is uh, Acts of the Apostles 510. Paul carried with him the atmosphere of heaven. All who associated with him felt the influence of his union with Christ. The fact that his own life exemplified the truth he proclaimed gave convincing power to his preaching. Let me read another one. In the courts above, Christ is pleading um, for his church, pleading for those for whom he has paid the redemption price of his blood. Centuries, ages can never lessen the efficacy of his atoning sacrifice, neither life nor death. Height nor depth can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not because, oh, help us, Holy Ghost. Not because we hold him so firmly, but because he holds us so fast. If our salvation depended on our own efforts, don't, please don't lose this. If our salvation depended on our own efforts, we could not be saved. If our salvation depended on our own efforts, we could not be saved. Let me finish it, then I'll give it to you. But it depends on the one who is behind all the promises. Our grasp on him 
may seem feeble, but his love is that of an elder brother. So long as we maintain, here it is again, our union with him, no one can pluck us out of his hands. That's Acts of the Apostles, page 552. Acts of the Apostles, page 552. Now, after reading all of these, if you're like me, you, you, you'll say, man, union with Christ, that's the key. Union with Christ, when I'm being uh, 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 mistreated, when I am standing before earthly tribunals and I don't know what to say, union with Christ, union with Christ gives me influence and the atmosphere of heaven. Union with Christ means that I cannot be plucked out of Christ's hand no matter what. Union with Christ means all of these things. And once I read that, I say, man, I want to be at one with Christ. How about you? I want to have union with Christ like this. How? How does the individual believer experience union with Christ? Because union with Christ is the key to God's promise of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. There are two ordinances in the Bible, two ordinances in the New Testament that I believe illustrate the union that you and I can experience with Christ and just how it works. Um, and we talked about one of those ordinances yesterday when we talked about baptism. We talked about baptism. And if you were here yesterday, you remember a little bit about that. And I'm going to go back and talk about that again. But I want to I start by saying that, um, you know, the answer to how the soul can be uh, un at union or unified with Christ is extremely simple. It is by believing in Christ's word. All right. That's the punchline. Uh, so if you were looking for something else, uh, you know, I hope I hope, though, I hope that that does not go by you. Believing in Christ's word is how you and I can experience union with him. Now, yesterday we talked about baptism and um, we suggested that baptism means that we become identified with Christ. Um, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, I know you not that so many of us as were baptized, were baptized into Christ's death. And so uh, that means that we have a unique experience with Jesus Christ through baptism. The other, the other ordinance that the New Testament speaks about is the ordinance of communion or what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. And there is an interesting word here that, um, that the apostle uses in reference to communion. <clears throat> and this is the reason why uh, we were, I guess someone asked a question yesterday about rebaptism. And I uh, tried to answer that by saying, you know, obviously, if the spirit of God is moving an individual to be rebaptized, then, you know, I'm not going to tell that person no. However, I do want to explain the importance of the communion service, the foot washing and not just the foot washing alone, but also the partaking of the bread and the wine. Are you there in first Corinthians chapter 10? And, and this, I think, goes a little bit deeper into that. The cup of blessing, which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, the word communion that's used there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. And it means joint participation. Now, when I read that, sometimes when you read things, you have to just... You know, I use, I use driving terms. I say you have to come out of fifth gear or overdrive. And then you have to break it down, perhaps, and put it in first gear and go slow and allow yourself to digest that. Koinonia. It means joint participation. And Paul is saying that when we partake of the cup of the Lord, which represents, obviously, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the body of the Lord, 
that we are made participants in the death of Jesus Christ, that we are participating, as it were, in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, that to me, it it, it takes on a, a whole different dynamic. It is more than and a lot of times we speak of these things and we say it is symbolic. Right. You've heard that before. We say baptism is symbolic. Baptism is symbolic, but it is not merely symbolic. Baptism is also, like I mentioned yesterday, it's the time when we are, when heaven identifies us with Jesus Christ. Because when we are baptized, it means that we become participants in the death of Jesus Christ. And so when we partake of the bread and wine, it means that we are again, we are uh, uh, being How can I say we are reasserting, as it were, our part in all that Jesus Christ has done for us. The fact that I am a participant in that means that I get all the benefits of all that the world's redeemer has wrought out on Calvary and all that he does for me now in heaven's sanctuary above. So you and I participate in all that Jesus has done. Are you with me? Three of you are with me, but that's all right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. Everything that Christ, the question was, that's his suffering as well. All that Christ has gone through on behalf of us, we become participants of. We participate in that. Now, our participation in Christ, in fact, uh, to answer your question more specifically, because I don't want you to go out of here and say Conway said, I'm going to answer that more specifically or let the scriptures do it. Our participation in Christ in the New Testament is spoken of in this way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 8, and 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, I'm going to go kind of fast, so if you want these later, I'll give them to you. We live with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we suffer with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we are crucified with Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 And Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, we are raised with Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, we are made alive with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we will be glorified with Christ. And again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we will inherit with Christ. And of course, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we will reign with Christ. So when the Bible says, that we become participants in Jesus Christ. It means that this is not simply symbolic. It means that you and I have become participants or let me put it this way. Heaven counts you and I as participants in all that Christ is and all that he has accomplished on behalf of us. Whatever Christ is owed, so to speak, by heaven, you and I are owed. That's why the Bible says that we will inherit with him. All the promises. That's why the Bible says all the promises of God are yea in Christ Jesus. We talked earlier in our uh, in session one or two about Jesus being the true Israel. But Jesus didn't make mistakes like national or literal Israel did. He perfectly fulfilled God's will for his life. So all those promises that were made to ancient Israel are yea in Christ Jesus, which means that we can come now before the throne and we can claim any of those promises as if you and I have now perfectly fulfilled all of the conditions in Christ Jesus because we're participants with him. Isn't that beautiful? So when I'm baptized, I become a participant in all that Christ has accomplished. And when I partake of the communion, bread and wine, I am being reaffirmed in my participation in all in my participation in Christ and everything that that means. So this is how we develop or this is how we step into union with Christ. All right. Is that I hope that's clear for everyone. And by being uh, <laughs> woo, mercy, by being by experiencing this union with Christ. I said that we have we have the privilege or access to everything that heaven has promised to Christ. Right now, when it comes to the spirit. John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, said him. To this one, 
the Lord gives the spirit without measure. You didn't even get that. Did you get it? My brother got it. He was shaking his head. I think he got it. Speaking of Jesus, the father gives Jesus the spirit without measure. Why? Because he perfectly fulfilled all the conditions because he could be perfectly trusted, which means. What does that mean for you and I? That the promise is now to us. That we will also be given the spirit without measure. So all the promises, all the promises that were to Christ, when you are a participant in Christ, when you experience union with Christ, you have all of that. You have all of that. Now, that's something that you can't take in in the seminar and chew and digest and let it matriculate and go all through every muscle and fiber of you. You can't do that here. You have to go home and keep chewing on that. If you're flying, you're on the plane, you're chewing on it. If you're driving, you're in the car, you're chewing on it. You're like, man, I am one with Christ. I am a participant in Christ. That's an amazing, an amazing reality. Now, when, uh, <laughs> when we experience union with Christ, now make no mistake about it, every Every one of, and this is what we'll talk about in the second uh, session we'll have, or the last two sessions. I believe that every one of Christ's believers in the apostolic church experienced union with Christ. You heard the quotes that we read at the beginning, right? His presence was more real with them, even though he wasn't there. How is that even possible? How is that possible? But you and I know it's real when we read the accounts in the book of Acts, because here's Peter and uh, the rest of the brethren, and they are speaking. They are speaking as though Jesus is still alive. Now, I like to study history. <clears throat> One of the empires that I like to study about was the Carthaginians. You know, if it wasn't for biblical prophecy, you know, Carthage might have uh, dominated the world like Rome did. I was kind of sad when they were defeated, actually, reading about that historically anyway. But the Carthaginians were one of my favorite empires. They had a general by the name of Hannibal. Now, Hannibal ran all the way after being, if you read about the Punic Wars and whatnot, okay, Hannibal was involved in, I think, the second Punic War, maybe the third, I'm not sure. But anyway, he ran all the way across into what now we would call the Middle East. And he was hiding because there was a bounty on his head. Do you know the Roman Empire found where he was? They sent a letter to the king who was giving him uh, refuge and said, give him up. And the king gave him up. The king gave him up. Now, if the Roman Empire could find Hannibal, if Jesus was dead, surely they could have found him, right? If his body had been stolen, surely they could have found him. And you know the disciples didn't take him anywhere. They were still there in Jerusalem. So you're going to tell me that the most powerful empire in the world couldn't find the body of Jesus if he was still here? Most assuredly, I say to you, they would have been able to, but they couldn't because he's not here. Because he resurrected and he ascended. And the disciples were eyewitnesses of this. They seen this. Not only did this mean that uh, they could now go forth and preach, but as we read in some of those quotations, since Jesus had experienced all of these things, they understood what he was now doing for them in the sanctuary above. And this is the reason why they could speak now with boldness. They saw themselves First of all, Jesus ascended. And how did he ascend? With what? He ascended with flesh. They touched him. Did you know what that meant for them? They recognized, like so many of us take for granted or don't realize, they realized that they now had a representative of humanity who was in the courts of heaven above. Not just 
someone who was up there uh, maybe walking around on the streets of gold and having a good time like Moses or Elijah, but one who could stand in the very presence of the Father on behalf of humanity. And he had the same type of, now glorified flesh, but he, he had human flesh and he was there as a, not just a representative, but a member of the Godhead. A member of the Godhead who is linked, and we talked about this earlier, that Israel experience, who he, he prevailed with God and with man. And the knowledge of this gave them boldness. Man, God is now linked with us forever. And so now I can stand up before the Sanhedrin and maybe they don't like what I'm saying, but hey, so what? We're going to obey God rather than you. You can threaten us, you can beat us, you can do whatever, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and the things which we have heard. They saw themselves. In fact, I was reading another, uh, another quote just this morning. Um, in the, in, uh, I think it's in Desire of Ages, but it says on the, uh, the, 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 the divine and human nature of Christ rests everything for you and I. That means on that divine, that, that union of the divine and human nature of Jesus Christ, on that, for you and I, rest everything. So this radically transformed the thinking of these men as they now realize, man, I got friends in high places. You know, you, you, you just imagine if you know, and I tell the story all the time, when I was little growing up, people used to say that, uh, you know, it was back in the, 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 the early 80s, and people used to say, uh, well, Michael Jackson was the most famous person at that time. And everybody called themselves a cousin of Michael Jackson. Just because they bought a little uh, jacket with some zippers on it and whatnot, they would come to school like, yeah, you know he's my cousin, right? And that, that, that association would give them some sort of status amongst everyone in the school. Listen, I, I don't want to be related to Michael Jackson. Better than being related to Michael Jackson, I'm related to Jesus. Now, if Michael Jackson could give me some type of status in elementary school, imagine what status being related to Jesus Christ can give me in the universe. That's an enormous privilege. And the apostles lived like this was a reality. You know, there are some truths that we hear and we're like, man, that's good. That's great. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's powerful. But we do not live as though it is a reality. In the spirit of prophecy, speaking about Moses, it says that the reason why Moses' life was such a success is because he lived as if the presence of God was a reality. He lived as though God was there with him. Moment by moment, day by day, and the apostles, I believe now, have this experience specifically in reference to Jesus Christ, living every day as though Jesus Christ is with them. That's why the apostle Paul was able to say, I sit with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, Paul, uh, bro, you in, you, you're in jail. They just dropped you in a hole and threw a, a top over you. The rats are scurrying by. What do you mean you sit with Christ? Because the presence of Christ was a reality for him. And it is that reality that I believe set the early church on fire. It was the key to their understanding of the promise because I am now at one with Christ because I'm a participant in Christ because I have union with Christ. Now, all of the promises of heaven are open to me. Yes. So whatever is coming, we know it's just the beginning of sorrows. It won't matter where we are. That's right. Because we will have him so real with us just as they Mm-hmm. So the comment was that whatever is, uh, whatever is coming is going to just, going to be just the beginning of sorrows, but it won't matter where we are or what's happening to us because the presence of Christ <clears throat> will be a reality for us. You know, if, if, you, if you spend time thinking about, <clears throat> excuse me, what's going to happen as we often must do contemplate the times that we live in. If you start thinking about that, maybe you're like me and I wonder, there are several places that I've mapped out on the globe and I said, I don't want to be there. I said, Lord, anywhere but there, because I've been to those places and I see how they treat people on a daily basis. I don't want to be there. But really and truly, when the presence of Christ is a reality, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, that will not be 
one of our priorities, thinking about where I'm going to be and what type of comfort I'm going to have. The highest priority will be service to the master. Yes, my brother. Okay. The question is, um, it's one thing to acknowledge a truth such as all the promises of God are yea in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to acknowledge that. But the question then becomes, how do we appropriate it? And I mentioned earlier those two ordinances. Those two ordinances, I believe, are extremely important because um, because of the challenge that your question, I believe, is is is, is uncovering that each of us has. Um, the, the Lord knows that we are tangible, audiovisual. Uh, we're, we're people like that. And I believe that's one of the reasons why he's given us these ordinances that uh, when conducted in the, the highest solemnity and with the, 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 the highest um, understanding, clear perception of what these things represent, um, when we participate in these, I believe that that is one step to help us to appropriate these on a daily basis. Um, but let's go back even prior to the ordinance of baptism or the ordinance of um, uh, partaking of the, the bread and the wine. There is something else that um, that each one of us an experience each one of us has that I believe is a foreshadowing of how we appropriate all that Christ is on a daily basis. We talked about it, I think, um, a couple of or one session or so ago, and that is what Romans chapter 10 talks about. It says, if you believe with your heart that God has raised up the Lord Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth, you call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That is a fundamental and extremely simple principle. But when we confess and believe, you know, I, I was having a conversation with with um, a member of my church and they were speaking to me about how uh, they res their response to things that people would say to them. Someone is nasty to them. And they said, what comes out of my mouth is pleasant. And I'm trying to be patient. And, but that's not always what's going on in my heart. What's coming out of my mouth is not always in harmony with what's in my heart. How many of you have had that experience before? Or sometimes you don't say anything because you don't want what's in your heart to come out of your mouth. And it's our... Our attempt as Christians to harmonize those two. Yes or no? Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. And yet, in that simple experience that Romans chapter 10 speaks of, they are harmonized. The heart, what the heart believes and the actions of the body. I'm using the mouth as a representative of the body. What the heart believes and the actions of the body are at one when an individual confesses belief in Jesus Christ. And it is that experience is that experience, which is actually the foundation of the Christian experience. That's why um, when um, Jesus was walking with his disciples and he said he asked them the question, who do men say I am? And then he got more specific and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response was, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, um, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, thou art Peter. And on this rock will I build my church. Jesus was not talking about uh, Peter. He was talking about Peter's confession. That's what the Christian church is built on. Seeing the biblical evidence being moved in heart by heaven itself. All right. And then confessing and acknowledging that what I see and what I hear is truth. 
And Jesus said, that is the foundation. Now, listen, that has to be the foundation of everything in my experience, because I didn't see Jesus crucified. I didn't see him resurrected, but I believed in my heart. I've accepted it so that I have acknowledged it with my mouth. That's the foundation of every other experience in the Christian experience, because I cannot see Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary interceding for me, can I? I can't see him ministering power to me when someone is saying something nasty to me. I can't see him ministering power to me if my wife were to leave me. I can't see him ministering power to me if I'm laying in the hospital bed and I'm sick and the doctor says, sir, we're sorry, but you only have X amount of time to live. I can't see that the angels ascending and descending coming into my hospital room, but I can believe it by faith. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So this foundational experience is not something that we have once and then throw away and then all of a sudden we run off and have this mystical experience with God. No, we can appropriate all that Christ is on a daily basis by, remember how we started? What did I tell you the key was? Believing the word of God. We can appropriate it every day by believing the word of God. God, you have promised Whatever it is that you've promised. Oh, okay. Let's say, uh, you know, I have a little girlfriend. Of course, I got a, my girlfriend who's also my wife. But let's say uh, that she wasn't my wife. And I had a girlfriend. And, um, you know, our relationship was, was breaking up. And it seemed as though this was not going to be the will of God. And, and as our relationship is breaking, my heart is breaking. But the Bible says the Lord God is a sun and shield. No good Thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly? So I've got to look at that and say, Lord, even though it feels like my heart is breaking and with everything in me, I want to keep this relationship because I sense your hand moving. I trust that it is not good for me to remain in this relationship, because if it were good for me to remain in this relationship, then your hand would be drawing us together. In fact, George Mueller, George Mueller, um, that great um, uh, evangelist, missionary, philanthropist, um, you know, he was married three times. And each of his wives died. This man was a powerful man of prayer. And yet he wrote that. Uh, and I can't remember which one of his wives was was dying at this time. But he went in and he prayed and he asked God. Now, this was a man who never once asked for money in order to maintain the orphanages. And in answer to prayer, God supplied all of his needs. Now he's praying and asking God to, to help his wife be with my wife. And you know, this guy recited that text. The Lord God is a son and a shield. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. And before he left by the bedside of his wife, he said, if it is good for me that my wife is healed, then she'll be healed. If it is not good for me that my wife is healed, then she won't be healed. Man. You ask, how do we appropriate it? That's how. We take the word of God and we apply it to our situations and we believe God. We believe what he says. As simple as that, obviously you understand it is simple, but it's not simple. <laughs> so um, that is how I hope that answers your question, how we appropriate all that Christ is. We take the promises in his word and we believe them. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, yes. Um, what you heard is absolutely correct, that based on based on what Christ has done for us, we can believe that all the other promises that have been made for us will be supplied. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul brings this out in Romans chapter five. I think my wife mentioned it. Let's go there. And um, then I think I'll. 
I'll close on this. Union with Christ. Talking about union with Christ. Romans chapter 5. And we'll begin with verse 8. Are you there? Come on, y'all. Talk to me now. I like when people talk to me. Are you there? That lets me know you're awake. All right. Verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. What are the first two words? Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What the Apostle Paul is doing is he is encouraging. He is encouraging his believers. In fact, I'm, you know, let me I'm going to jump back to that. But now let's read verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You got that? All right. So let me let me jump back here. <clears throat> Paul begins chapter five like this or, or not begins, but verse three. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. Hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And then he gives the reason why he says for or because when we were yet sinners or when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The word um, tribulation can be translated as crisis. Translated as what? Crisis. Anybody ever had a crisis in your life? All right. It can also be translated as persecution. It can also be translated as uh, tribulation. I told you that. All right. There's about six or seven. I don't have them all with me right now and in memory, but there's about six or seven different ways. None of them are positive that that word tribulation can be defined as. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that when these times come, you can glory. Now, you think like me, what what on earth are you talking about? When I'm being persecuted, I can glory. (laughs) That doesn't sound too good. I don't think I want any part of that. But listen to his explanation of why you and I can glory during these trying times in our lives. He says, because or for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he goes on to say what we read in verse eight. God commendeth, exercised, demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In essence, in the Apostle Paul's mind, the greatest crisis that any human being ever finds himself or herself in is the sin crisis. Are you with me? And Paul says, if God could deal with the greatest crisis that humanity ever faced by sending the greatest gift that heaven could ever give in the person of Jesus Christ, if that's how God dealt with that crisis, then you can glory because you know that any other crisis that you face in life, God is going to exercise, demonstrate his love for you much more. Now, he uses the term much more, but, you know, he's just playing with words, right? Because how much more could God demonstrate his love for us than he did in sending his son, Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> it could be much more for us. If if much more was possible, if God treated you like that in the greatest crisis, how much more will he care for you in all of these lesser crises? Because when you think about it, being persecuted is a lesser crisis than being eternally lost. Right. My marriage dissolving is a lesser crisis than being eternally lost. Me uh, having cancer is a lesser crisis than being eternally lost. Any crisis that we can think of in life are less than being eternally lost. And so the Apostle Paul says, listen to me, if this is how God dealt with you there, then in all of these other things, you better believe that he will come through for you there as well. And so that's how that's how. What Christ has done for us becomes the foundation and the catalyst for dealing with everything else in life. All other tribulations, 
all other crises in life. And that's why the Apostle Paul says we can glory in them. How does he glory? He glories because he has a mindset of expectation. If God came through for me, then I'm expecting him to do something for me in these. And I can look at the promises of God. Which one are you going to fulfill for me now? Which one are you going to exercise in my life now? Which one? So Jesus Christ is not only the key for unlocking the um, heaven's treasure or heaven's storehouse in terms of pouring out the Holy Spirit on all flesh, but on an individual level, Jesus Christ becomes your personal key and my personal key to unlocking all that the Holy Spirit has for you and I in our personal and our individual lives. And there are two ordinances, two ordinances that the New Testament gives that are reminders of this. Reminders. They are baptism and the communion service. And then there is also this foundational experience of believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth, which then becomes the catalyst for all other experiences that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Loving Father and our God, we thank you for um, for giving us Christ in a personal sense. We thank you that even after his resurrection and ascension, that we could read things like the apostles felt closer to him than when he was physically there with them. It gives us hope, Lord. We who are so often tied to that which is tangible, and yet we... We see today that the risen Christ is indeed tangible. That he can harmonize the belief of the heart with the actions of the life. Father, what a tremendous miracle that is. We pray, dear Lord, that that miracle would be repeated every day in our lives. We pray that our union with Christ would grow stronger and deeper until we have an atmosphere, the atmosphere of heaven, even as the Apostle Paul did, that surrounds us. Lord, I pray that nothing the enemy would throw at us, whatever, break us apart from Christ. Help us to maintain our union by believing in your word. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.